One of my favorite memories of, or maybe favorite's the wrong word, one of my most vivid memories of a family vacation trip is related to a phrase that our, one of our three-year-old twins said over and over, this was a number of years ago, as we were on this long road trip. The, the, the challenge was that my wife was pregnant with our third son, Jeremiah, so we couldn't do our normal camping experience, so we had to rent a cabin. And the place that I found to rent a cabin was in the Upper Peninsula, like way, way up in the Upper Peninsula, like Copper Harbor, Michigan. So you know, people who are from Michigan always have a handy map. So here's the lower, here's the upper, and it's up there, okay? So from our home in, in Western Michigan to that location, it was 14 hours with three-year-old twin boys. So we, we, we tried to do as much as we could to prepare them. We even had one of those um, sort of janky uh, TV VCR combo things and I kind of built a little platform, strapped it in so they could watch videos. Thankfully, we never got in an accident because that thing would have been airborne and deadly. We had snacks and coloring books and we also tried to prepare them to say, we're gonna go on a big trip. Well, that preparation backfired. Because for 14 hours, one of our twins kept saying, I wanna go on my trip. I wanna go on my trip. And so we thought, well, maybe it's McDonald's. So we pulled into McDonald's. Here's your trip. No, I wanna go on my trip. Went to a gas station. Look, we're at a gas station. It's our trip. No, I wanna go on my trip. Pulled over for dinner. Look, how about this? No, I wanna go on my trip. 14 hours. I wanna go on my trip. I wanna go on my trip. It was a miserable experience. Finally, we arrived at this Christian camp where I'd rented this cabin, and so we saw the entrance, and the name of the camp literally was Gitchy Gumi Camp. And so we're like, look, we're here. No, I want to go on my trip. So we were at this point just frustrated beyond measure, but finally we were there, and so we took a drive down to see Lake Superior before we checked into our cabin, and then it happened. He said, look, it's my trip. And all it was was water. That's what he wanted to see. And I said to my wife, my goodness, we could have stopped by a retention pond or something and made this a lot better trip, right? This is crazy, because in his mind, water equaled the trip. Like, whatever trip was for him, it was connected to water. I want you to think of another word, the word home. What is home for you? Maybe it's your bed, comfortable chair, I'm gonna go home, what does that mean? Maybe you walk into your house and it's the feel, the smell, a particular meal, maybe it's the gathering of family. I know for some, home is complicated, I get that. But home has an objective reality, it's a, <clears throat> it's a place, but it's also something that's emotional, something that we sort of have an image of. It's where we want to go, a place of safety, a place of refuge. It's interesting that the Bible talks a lot about the home of those who know Christ. The Bible tells us what the end game is of where Christians, those who know Jesus as their savior, are headed. And the reason the Bible does this is in order to help us endure when life is hard, to remind us what our hope is in and where we're headed, to remind us emotionally of the place that we belong. Isaiah 11 is designed to be a text that helps to provide encouragement for God's people when they were facing some pretty scary days. Days when, in this context, the nation of Assyria was at the border 
and Israel felt the pressure of an imminent invasion. In the middle of this very hard-pressed season, Isaiah 11 offers a series of promises in order to remind God's people of where their emotional safety should lie. And this morning what I wanna do is give you three promises from Isaiah 11 that as you think about Advent 2020 with all of its complications, as you think about what it means to be home and all of what that means, what are the things that followers of Jesus should place their trust in? So this text offers three promises that are, I think, really helpful to be reminded about. Promise number one is a ruler who is righteous. Secondly, the promise of a place to live in peace. And third, a deliverance from our displacement. So there's a person, there's a place, and there's this deliverance. And all of these are designed to help us to kind of catch our emotional, uh, an emotional ballast, if you will, or an equilibrium, to remind us that even when days and situations and seasons are hard, it's helpful to be reminded both who we are and where we're headed. And that's what this text is all about. So let me help you understand this, and then we'll draw some conclusions and some applications at the end. Number one, this text tells us that there is a ruler who is righteous. So look at Isaiah chapter 11. When God's people think about what home is, it relates not just to a location, but it relates firstly to a person. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So what is promised here is a ruler who will be righteous. And of course, if you know the story of the Bible, this is fulfilled in the person of Christ. This text helps us to even see some things in the New Testament more clearly, where there's parallels between this passage and what we find in the New Testament. Notice that the name Jesse is mentioned. This is because Jesse is the father of David, and this relates to an Old Testament promise that a person from the lineage of David would rule over the house of Israel. It was a promise that God made to Israel centuries earlier. For example, Hosea chapter three and verse five says, and afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So this promise relates to this David-like king who would rule over Israel. And of course, Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of that. But at the time, that promise seemed like a million years away. In fact, that's why the word stump is really important. So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. My guess is if you have a stump or a series of stumps in your backyard, you're not really proud of them. If I was to come over to your house, you wouldn't be like, look at our amazing stumps. Aren't they beautiful? Like stumps, stumps are a sign of what used to be there. It's, it's a forest that's cut low and all that remains are these just pieces of wood that are both hard to get out of the ground but aren't very attractive. And the idea is that in the midst of this devastation, that's why that stump metaphor is there, there's this shoot that springs out. This 
stump reality is because of divine discipline. Look at verses 33 and 34 of chapter 10. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax. And Lebanon, which was known for great cedars, will fall by the majestic one. In other words, at the time when this was being written, the nation of Assyria was this major threat to the people of Israel, and what God, in effect, says to the prophet Isaiah is that Assyria may be the ax, but God is the one who's holding the ax. And he was gonna use the nation of Assyria in order to awaken Israel to their need of him. I trust that you know that when hard times come in your life, no matter what they are, there are always good divine purposes that are in them. You can think of it this way, that divine discipline never destroys promises. Divine discipline never destroys promises. And even though things could look bleak, even though things look difficult, here is God who is still committed to his people. A small shoot shall come from this providentially ordained stump. We fast forward 300 years, it'll sound like this. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Who would have thought that the deliverance of Israel and the redemption of mankind would come from a baby in a manger? God loves to do stunning, surprising things like that. In fact, it says the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So underneath this stump was this root system, and from that root system, is going to come fruit. Some of you may need just to just kind of camp out in verse one to be reminded that underneath the surface of your life is a root system of divine purposes. That God is at work in a vast network of decisions and you just don't see all of what he's doing. Last week I said that God's sovereignty is safer than certainty. Let me also tell you that God's sovereignty is more certain than my certainty. There's been a lot of things in my lifetime that I've looked at and thought, I know exactly what's going on here, and oftentimes I really don't. Or in other cases, I have something going on, and I look at it and think, what in the world is this all about? only later to see what it was that God was up to. So Isaiah 11 is a promise that there is this fulfillment of God's love and care for his people that comes even when it seems as though things are bleak and dark. Notice also the presence of the Spirit, verse two. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So he will be the anointed one, anointed by the Spirit. And for those of you who know the New Testament story, Jesus, when he's baptized in Matthew chapter three, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and from heaven a loud voice says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
Here is the spirit that rests upon him. And then notice the powerful and beautiful portrait of his leadership. Verse 3b, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So he won't just have his eyes and his ears, but instead he will judge with righteousness. It says he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In other words, he's going to bring justice to those who are mistreated including the poor and the meek. Why why does he talk about the poor and the meek? Because the poor are the ones who don't have access to money. The meek are those who don't have access to power. And as a result, they're more vulnerable to exploitation. In fact, that's the very thing that God is concerned about in the nation of Israel. Look at chapter 10 and verses one and two. He says, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people from their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make their fatherless their prey. So what's gonna happen is this righteous ruler is gonna make things in the context of the people of God that are wrong, he's gonna make those things right. What's more, he will rule by virtue of divine power and authority. Says, verse four, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. So notice here, this ruler is merely going to be able to speak. That's the weapon that he will use, that kind of power. Thinking all the way back to the book of Genesis and God's ability to speak and create. Here now this righteous ruler will speak and that will be the method of the enforcement of his rule of law. You know, this sounds very similar to Revelation 19. And what's interesting is we have Isaiah 11 being fulfilled in the person of Christ coming in the first advent, and now we wait his second advent, his return, and when that happens, this is what it will look like. Listen to Revelation 19, and notice the similar language between Revelation 19 and Isaiah 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's quite an image. So what does all this mean? It's this that the central hope of our future home for those who know Christ is directly connected to the one who will be ruling, namely Jesus. Our hope is based on the trust and confidence, not in a location primarily, but mostly in a person. So our longing for our future day, our better day, our eternal rest is directly connected to the one in whom we are placing our trust. So let me just speak to those of you who are listening who are not yet Christians. You're still trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What you need to know is that God made you for himself. He created within you this longing for something more, and sin, the things that we do that are wrong, causes us to be separated not only from God personally, but from the very plan of God to make you into the very human, full human being that God wants you to be. And what happens is when Christ offers himself as the 
means by which our sins can be forgiven, not only is your account cleansed by the righteousness of Christ, but you're actually brought back to the place where God wanted you in the first place. And this is the problem of sin, and what the devil's aim is, is to convince you that you could find satisfaction in all sorts of other things. And what the Bible says is you will not be satisfied until you find your rest in Christ. And then when, those, when we repent, put our trust in Jesus, it means that when we hear something like Revelation chapter 11, and we hear that Jesus is gonna return, there's something within our hearts that says yes, yes, because of our love and affection for Jesus. So the first promise is a ruler who is righteous. Here's the second promise, and that is a place to live in peace. So the grand drama of the Bible is to return in the second advent back to the environment in the Garden of Eden where there was no sin and God and mankind dwelt in perfect harmony. And as a part of that return back to the Garden of Eden, everything in the created order is set to experience the same kind of shalom, same kind of peace that characterized the world in the very beginning. So then we have this description. In verse six, notice this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now don't just kind of blow through that, just think of that. Imagine going to the zoo he came around the corner and it said the wolf and lamb exhibit. You're probably like, okay kids, hide your eyes, right? Because we know what's gonna happen. Like this is not gonna be good because immediately there's this assumption, oh, that, that story's not gonna turn out well. But in, in this new place, the very essence of aggression and the presence of that which would result in the destruction of something else is gone. The leopard, in verse six, will lie down with the young goat. Imagine that, you're walking through and every zoo is now this beautiful little petting zoo where you got a leopard and the goat lying next to each other. And you're like, oh, isn't that cute? Right now you go to the zoo, you're like, that goat needs to get out of there. And then it says the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And then it says the little child shall lead them. Verse eight it's a little more specific, and for those of you who aren't snake lovers, just imagine this. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. So just think of that, a nursing child, unable to move, like can't crawl yet, and the mom sets it down. Oh, look honey, here's a cobra nest. Let's put our baby here, and then leaves the baby. I don't know if you have a phobia for snakes, my wife does. We were out camping this summer, and we went to Brown County, and I didn't know, do you know Brown County State Park, like there's legit rattlesnakes? Like I had no idea, they showed us pictures, and I was like, yeah, whatever. Well, we're walking around the path, and there was this massive snake, I mean, it was like this big. Uh, and it was, a, it was a legit rattlesnake. We took a picture, but how I knew it was there, I walked past it, and my wife saw it, and she made this sound, like, and her knees started to give out. She's like, oh! And I was like, do you know what? She goes, look! And I look over there, and it was a big, thick, probably a pregnant snake with a rattle on it. We took a picture, and we're like, let's keep our distance. And you could imagine the scene of a little baby with a rattlesnake wrapped around its arm going, look, cute snake, and the rattle's going back and forth, and the baby's playing with it. I mean, it just, it's a completely 
almost seemingly ridiculous scene when everything in the created order now has been reversed such that there's no animosity, no aggression. Some people think this is gonna be the new heavens and the new earth, maybe. Others, like myself, think it's the thousand year reign of Christ described in Revelation 20. Good Christians have different perspectives on what that actual location of when this is fulfilled is and good Christians can have differing opinions on that. The point we all agree on is that this is what the world looks like when Jesus is in charge. Don't you want Jesus to be in charge? Don't have to worry what his platform is. Don't have to worry if he's gonna change his mind. Don't have to worry if someone's gonna say something true about him or not true, because everything he says is all true. And what's interesting is verse nine says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The book of Revelation puts it this way. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Here's why. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The point is this. As centered as we are on the sun rising and the sun setting, as dependent as we are for heat from the sun for our own survival, the Bible tells us that the sun gets replaced with the glory of God in the person of Jesus. It's remarkable. But you know what's so beautiful about that environment? Revelation 21 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There's no more mourning, no crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Imagine what that's like. Satan is banished. Think of that, waking up every day and there's not a single temptation. Not one. Sin is defeated. Every remaining element of what sin has done in the world is gone. There's no more goodbyes. No more death, no more sickness, no more getting up in the morning and thinking, oh man, that really hurts. None of that, it's all gone. And this is what every Christian who knows Christ ultimately longs for. It, it's, it's the longing that this is not right and we long for the Lord to return. That's what Advent is. His first coming set in motion our longing for the second coming, and what we do is we live in the land between the first and the second arrival of King Jesus. And the Bible reminds us what he is like and what that realm is like in order to help us in the midst of our endurance. To be reminded, this world is not our home. We live for another kingdom. We are citizens, and we belong to a heavenly king. Third promise, he promises a deliverance from displacement. This third promise kind of brings us back to reality, and in Isaiah's context, it's written with a primary focus towards the people of Israel. In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. In other words, God's gonna like set a light for the nations, and the apostle Paul saw this as, partially being fulfilled in the ministry that the gospel is being brought to the Gentiles. And then in verse 11 it says, in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. So there's this now image of a second exodus. 
in order to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Now, the thing is, is these people have been scattered all over the world and they begin to think, has God forgotten about us? And Isaiah is like, God hasn't forgotten about you. And in the snap of his fingers, he's gonna call all of his people back to himself from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath. Those cities and those regions mean nothing to us, but the idea is that from the east and the west and the south and the north, God will call his people back to himself. In other words, that means there is no place that you can run or no place that you can be exiled to where God can't bring you home. He says he will raise a signal for the nations you will assemble the banished of Israel, who gather to the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. In other words, the interfamily disputes that were going on in Israel that resulted even in the divided kingdom, those things are all gonna be settled. Imagine that, sitting around a banquet table No more animosity, no more division, no more wondering, what do they mean by that? It's all glorious, all unified. Jesus has made everything right. There's no tension, no conflict, no having to nuance your words. It's the best and most fulfilling experience in all of eternity, and Jesus designs it to be just that. Verse 16, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. In verse 14, I skipped over that. They they, they swoop down and become part of the army of heaven as a part of the deliverance of, of Jesus here. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and will strike it into seven channels. In other words, like major bodies of water, like here the sea of Egypt won't stop God's deliverance, the Um, little river that he's referring to as the river Euphrates. He'll make it into little streams that can be walked over with sandals. He will lead his people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, God is going to bring his people back. There are some times when being a follower of Jesus means that you feel your displacement or your exile. Maybe you feel that in how you think and you think, man, nobody thinks like I think in my circles. Maybe with your family that you're, you're blood with, but it feels like you're just on a different page. Or maybe you've been rejected by your family. Or maybe it's just this odd sense that I live in this world, but I don't, really belong here. It's it's the reason that Jesus said this in John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So if in the next week you encounter something where you just are made very much aware of the brokenness of the world, can I just remind you, it's simply another marker that this is not the world in which you should place your hope. But instead, those who are followers of Jesus are looking for another country, another king, another citizenship, another realm. And that becomes the infinite reference point by which then we mark our journey. So how do we long for home? 
In the same way that my son said, I wanna go on my trip, I wanna go on my trip. In his mind, he had an idea of what trip was. So what does it mean for you to long for home? Let me give you three things to think about. Number one, at a minimum it means that you should set your mind on things above. Can I just remind you that if you're not spending time thinking about the things of Christ, not spending time in the word, not spending time in prayer, not with other people who help remind you of these truths, it will be very easy for you to become so focused on the brokenness of the world that you're in that you forget about the perfection of the world that you're destined for. Some of you, the best thing you could do is probably turn off the news. Stop scrolling through your friend's social media account. Instead, pick up the Bible and be reminded, this is the home that I'm destined for. Find some music and play it to be reminded of the importance of elevating your heart. Find a good friend that can pray with you and encourage you. Set your mind on things above. Number two, allow good gifts to point you homeward. There will be moments during this Christmas holiday where you'll experience something that's just amazing. A, a laughter in the midst of your family room or a great conversation with a friend or just the right present that somebody gives you or an amazing meal that you're able to eat. Let me encourage you to take that meal Take that gift, take that conversation, and be reminded, you think this is awesome? Oh man, this is just a foretaste of what is yet to come. For Father's Day, my wife bought me a smoker. So I've been learning how to smoke various kinds of meat. It's been quite an experience. I uh, have given many burnt offerings to the Lord over the last uh, couple of weeks. And what's re remarkable, just this last weekend, we, 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 we smoked some baby back and St. Louis ribs. And I'm telling you, this is straight up the best meat I've ever had in my entire life. And as I'm eating that and thinking, man, this is good, that taste in my mouth should remind me that there is coming a meal of the marriage supper of the lamb there probably will be barbecue at it. It'll be at a particular set. I'll meet you there. But it will be one of many experiences where we, were, where we will say, this is unbelievable. And so can I encourage you when unbelievably beautiful things happen, just to stop, see the sunrise, and be reminded, God painted that. See the laughter of your kids. And even though not everybody is home, or even though it's not the same, instead of focusing on what's broken, celebrate the beautiful and let the beautiful propel you to be reminded how good God is because there are so many graces, even though they're broken graces, that point to the greater grace of our future heavenly home. And number three and finally, can I encourage you to temper your sorrows with your hope, with hope rather, about home, to be reminded that we ought not to be surprised when this world is disappointing. Of all people on the earth, Christians ought to know what's wrong with the world. We ought to be, quite frankly, surprised when things go well because we know how devastating sin is. We know how broken the world is and what we do is to temper our sorrows with hope about our home, to be reminded that when life is disappointing and people don't quite measure up or that holiday wasn't really what you thought it would be and you're left with sort of this empty feeling of that wasn't very satisfying, be reminded it wasn't designed to be satisfying. 
It was designed to remind you that there's something even more. C.S. Lewis says this, in the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. Listen to this. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next, and we take solace whenever it does not. And as a result, we can have hope when we long for home. So instead of thinking about what your trip is, I want you to think about where your home is. And the Bible gives us a beautiful picture of what it means for Christians to be at home so our hearts can be set on that reality for our long and difficult journey. As we wait from the first advent to the second, the Bible reminds us what our home is like. Lord Jesus, we want you to come. We echo the words of the hymn writer, come, come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. God, grant us, we pray today, the grace to take our troubles, our hardships, our difficulties, and to use them as platforms to remind us of your goodness and grace in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would use Isaiah 11, perhaps even to draw someone who's not yet a Christian to put their trust and hope in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you're pursuing them designing the circumstances of their lives, let even be hearing this message today. Lord, let our hearts be set on what it means for us to be at home, especially when it feels like everything is upside down. So thank you that you are our hope. You are the source of all of our joy and you are worthy, oh Jesus, to be trusted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.